Uh, I'm not Randy Boltinghouse. My, my name is Todd Daly. I'm a professor of theology and ethics at Urbana Seminary in town. And Randy's away for the month of August, so he's asked uh, several people to fill in um, for him, and I hope you can appreciate the desperate nature of the situation when he's reduced to call on a seminary professor to come and preach. Um, if, if nothing else, um, you'll appreciate his preaching all the more when he does come back. Uh, let's, let's pray briefly before we start. God, we thank you that you, you change lives. Will you change us this morning um, through, <clears throat> through what I say and in spite of what might be said here, all for your glory. In your name, amen. Well, we live in a culture that is obsessed with stuff, and one look at our garage would confirm that, uh, having, having basically sold everything we own, uh, having moved to Scotland several years back, and then come back with almost nothing in a period of just over two years, we have acquired more suitcases and boxes than we know what to do with. Uh, disturbingly, a lot of these are uh, set aside uh, and dedicated to seasonal type of decor, which uh, always seems to pile up more and more, and it's always, my wife's already given me a look, it just, it, it never seems to go away. Um, but I've got plenty of my stuff too. Um, we've had at least two garage sales to get rid of all our stuff. But if I'm honest with myself, I still routinely find myself slowing down when I come across a garage sale of someone else who is trying to get rid of all of their old stuff. It, it doesn't even have to be a garage sale. Um, trash mornings can be uh, amazingly productive. <laughs> That's a perfectly good fill-in-the-blank. And regardless of the price tag, it is clear that we all love, to some degree, to consume. We live in a consumer culture which thrives uh, in large part on creating discontent. Uh, columnist M.P. Dunleavy, who writes on the hidden cost of too much stuff, blames it on the innocent-looking Pottery Barn catalog full of versatile solutions for modern living. Whenever I glimpse that evil source of home-decorating temptation, she says, I succumb to the affliction of our age, the senseless desire to acquire. One look at Pottery Barn's new line of reversible quilted silk comforters last week, and I crave them, she said. And she's right. And advertisers know it. Last year, American corporations spent over $150 billion in advertising alone, reminding us of the stuff we need to make our lives complete. I remember back when we were still living in the UK and we had been there for a few years, uh, we, we had come back to the United States right around Thanksgiving time, right before you know, Black Friday and, and the shopping blitz. And I just re remember being struck as an outsider for the first time at just how insane sales can be and just how hard uh, can, uh, producers and uh, retailers, how hard they try to sell us stuff. Uh, I was dumbstruck by the number of commercials and ads exhorting us to save 40 and 50% off retail price for one day only in uh, what was called a doorbuster discount. And, and if you shopped between 5 and 6 a.m., you'd get an extra 10 to 20% off. 
And as I read these ads, it, it made me feel like a complete idiot for not wanting to get up and go out and grab all these deals. Uh, I turned to my wife and I said, honey, we've got to get out there and start saving. Um, And as a culture, we've demonstrated that we're willing to pay uh, that kind of price for instant gratification, uh, and even more so if it's 50% off. Even in this kind of economic downturn, consumer debt continues to spiral out of control. Collectively, as a people, we owe about $800 billion in credit card debt alone, which comes out to about five grand a person. And at the same time, our generosity quotient seems to be getting a bit smaller. We're we're now discovering respectable white-collar middle-class crimes, padding out insurance claims, fraudulently seeking refunds, paying in cash to avoid paying taxes, stealing from the workplace, etc. And recent studies seem to confirm what we all kind of already intuitively know, and that is the more junk and stuff and wealth we acquire, the less inclined we find ourselves to give. But this trend is more than cultural and external, and I think it goes right to the core of our very being. Uh, how do we explain that? Uh, I think theologically, the answer is one word. It's, it's sin. It's at the core of our being from childhood. W- what's one of the first words that we all learn? Um, mine. Mine. Uh, I, uh, I uh, give you example of the silly sprinkler, a toy that is supposed to provide hours of backyard joy, can at the same time become a source of endless strife and shouting and a tug of war. And after 20 minutes of arguing, yelling, and crying and stomping, I finally told my wife, it's mine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's not actually true, but uh, you know what? We really... We really don't behave much differently as adults, do we? We're just better at masking our true feelings. We do it with more subtlety and sophistication. But, but this hidden cost of acquiring this stuff has consequences graver than what Dunleavy identified in her column. I think we all know that the stuff we own can eventually end up owning us. But the more troubling scenario here is that we often sacrifice a life of abundance for one of success and comfort. And I think that's precisely what's going on actually in Matthew 19 between the rich young ruler and Jesus where Jesus extends an invitation to discipleship but with some pretty heavy qualifications or impossible demands. Demands in which this case end in great sorrow for this rich man. Um, Page 696 in in your pew Bibles. Uh, Matthew 19, 16. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. I think there's, I think there's one, one core idea here. Very simple, impossible to fulfill. If, if, if you want to follow, you got to forsake. <laughs> if you want to follow, you've got to forsake. And following Christ means forsaking wealth or comfort. And what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at is three basic elements of this kind of following, this kind of forsaking. In this passage, Christ gives us the requirement for becoming a disciple. Uh, He talks about the resistance that he can overcome, and he also promises uh, a reward. And first, very clearly, Christ requires it. He says, forsake your wealth. We must forsake our stuff because it's, it's a requirement. This man was trusting in his wealth. And I think, indeed, he did have an honest desire to follow Christ. He was seeking a, a kind of personal salvation that was equated with, in the Jewish mindset, of obeying the law, obeying what God said to do in the Old Testament. And at first, Jesus gives no indication that he's doing anything wrong. What what do I need to do to get the kingdom of heaven? What what do I need for eternal life? Jesus says, point blank, just keep the commands. Now, this young man would have been very familiar with these. But as a sign of his genuine seeking, uh, as an indication that he still hasn't quite found what he's looking for, he, he, he pushes. He pushes back and asks another question. Now, he may have been looking for just that, you know, that one additional instruction that would ensure entrance into heaven. And Jesus doesn't disappoint him at this point and re- responds by quoting uh, some of the Ten Commandments. Uh, don't murder, don't commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal. Honor your parents, honor your family. And then he kind of caps it off with Leviticus 19, that the summary of the law, part of the summary of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. But this young man is undaunted. This, this would have turned most people away. But he proudly, and it seems to me, sincerely claims that he has done all of these things. For he was at least, at the very least, thinking externally. But note, note the mercy and patience of Jesus. At this particular point, Jesus could have publicly pointed out all of the times that he had failed in precisely every one of these commandments. But he didn't. He, he continues to follow the line of conversation. And it's quite fascinating, too, that in, in verse 20, um, I think there's a profound admission here in, in the second half of the verse that even this man who thinks he's obeying the law, thinks he's being righteous, he's doing everything well, Who's, who's got all the riches he apparently needs, he himself is recognizing that there is something lacking. I, I'm, I'm missing something. What, what else is there? What 
do I still lack? Ever feel that way? Even, even, as, uh, even as a Christian? Ever feel like there's a, a particular void um, deep down and you're not sure um, what's going on? Ever feel this kind of nameless uh, angst that doubtless Nietzsche would have been well acquainted with? Um, that heaviness that anxiety that can't be named, but it's, it's there, it's palpable? Ever feel like you're skimming along the surface of things and, and you find yourself perhaps longing for some depth, for some substance? Is, the, is, is this what the Christian life is about? Is, is, there, something, is there something more? And here, here Jesus Uh, takes the bait, so to speak, and cuts to the quick with this man. And he kind of drops this bombshell on him and says, if you want to be perfect, and it's, it's probably better translated as complete. If you want to be complete, here's what you need to do. Go, get rid of your stuff, literally all that stuff, that you've spent so much time acquiring. Take that money, give it to the poor, and then come, follow me. There it is. You asked for it. <laughs> you asked for it. There it is. Forsake and follow. Forsake and follow. And this wealthy young man himself knew that he was lacking in something, that there was an emptiness in his life of wealth that could not be filled except paradoxically by letting all of that stuff go and becoming a disciple of Christ. In one sense, he needed to empty himself and be empty so that he could be fulfilled. But his mistrust of Christ and his trust in his wealth kept him from making that critical, critical decision. And this is where we can run into trouble. I mean, come on, let's, let's be real. We are not expected to give all our possessions away, much less... Um, all of our investment portfolios. Is that, is that really what Jesus is talking about? Can't, can't we somehow domesticate that or, or twist it around or kind of take the edge off a little bit? You know, maybe not 10%, but how about if you start giving 20% of your income pre-tax? Maybe that's what God is calling us to do. Maybe, maybe that's what Jesus means here. And in one respect, I think we can rest easy, at least for a moment, because there are no general commands in Scripture to give away all of our possessions to the poor. But at the same time, I think it's very, very easy to misread Scripture and domesticate the radical nature of the words of Jesus. Most philosophy in the world is not radical enough, most philosophy in the world is too conservative. I was once told by a very wealthy, Harvard-educated brother in Christ that it's not about accumulating massive amounts of wealth, but it's really about providing for your family and being content with what you have. And I thought about that, and it was said humbly and genuinely, and I thought, you know, that's, well, that's, a, that's a great attitude. And then I realized that's just complete and utter nonsense. 
It, it really is. It is a load of rubbish. If, if we think that is really true, then we've missed the radical message of Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. All the other stuff will be taken care of. All the other stuff will be taken care of. So, yeah, yeah, we should be troubled when we come across this passage. These verses should shake us to the core. Could, could he be, could be asking me to do that? I mean, these are biblical characters. You know, th- these are disciples and, you know, the, the gospel is growing, the church is, is, is about to be birthed. You know, it, it applies for them. But let's, you know, that was then, this is now. Let's just chill out a little bit and, and reread this with, uh, with, with a little more sanity. But I think we do need to be troubled because this man's wealth kept him from following Jesus and from entering into life. I think we need to be at least a little bit troubled because we're the rich ruler. We're the rich ruler in this story. Again, I want to qualify a couple things uh, right up front. First, Jesus is not saying that it is bad to be rich. He's not saying that. Nor is he saying that there's any particular virtue of being attached to being poor. In, in our kind of culture of American evangelicalism, it is just as easy to worship money through the disciplined pursuit of sound financial principles as it is through mismanagement and reckless spending. You can worship money by taking out bad loans. You can worship money by being frugal and by making sure that you have a large enough contingency fund so that when hard times hit, you won't need to rely on anyone else. That is nothing more than American individualism in Christian guise. That is not how the church of Christ is to function. And so I just want to say point blank, I don't know who you are, but for some of you, God may indeed be calling you to give up most of what you have because it is holding you back from following him more closely. And that might even involve becoming, heaven forbid, financially dependent upon the church in the future as you abandon the life of success for the life of abundance through hardship. The history of the church knows something about this uh, in the figures of, at the very least, St. Anthony and St. Francis of Assisi, who both came across this passage and were convicted and convinced that they needed to literally give it away in order to follow Christ. Far be it from me to say that they overreacted. But note, if indeed you may be one of those people whom God is asking that hard question, um, we ought to assume that others in the church who still have their riches are ready to use them at God's bidding. What Jesus' statement is really getting at is an attempt to uncover the primary object of this man's trust and affection. What's your ultimate source of trust? And like a patient who requires the care of a skilled surgeon, the decision of whether or not to go under the knife, this man was invited to come under the care and provision of the master teacher by following Jesus. An offer to exchange a life of success for a life of discipleship and abundance through hardship. But sadly for this man, this price was too high. He had placed too much trust in his stuff or his wealth. 
Jesus here was laying claim not really to the young man's riches or his property, but he was laying claim to his heart. (laughs) What does Jesus want from you? He wants everything. He wants it all. Because it's, it's his anyway. He knew full well that where your treasure is, is where your heart is. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And with one brilliant question, Jesus laid bare this young man's heart and the object of his devotion. And the empty man who approached Jesus for an answer went away both empty and sad. And this is the subtle danger of wealth or stuff or security or safety. It easily grabs hold of our heart and it turns our affections away from the kingdom. He settled for a life of security and safety and comfort over a life of risk and maximum impact. And we we face every bit the same temptation as little by little we accumulate more and more stuff and hold on to it a bit more tightly. And the longer the list of our acquisitions grow, the larger our bank account becomes, the easier it is for our heart to grow cold. The homeless become a little less visible. And, And the window to the world the window to a broken and hurting world that we now have in high def uh, becomes easier to turn away from. And frankly, it's just as easy for the church to think this way corporately. It really is. One of my favorite stories uh, is told by Tony Campolo, a rather outspoken and abrasive uh, evangelical pastor and teacher Uh, He was about to preach at a wealthy Presbyterian church out east when, as he ascended the the stage, an announcement was made um, that a missionary couple that was being supported by the church needed $2,000 urgently. And so Tony Campolo was asked to pray for this couple and that their needs might be met before he preached. (laughs) And Campolo just kind of laughed and resolutely refused to pray. He said, I'm not going to pray for that. He said, he said we're the church. So uh, he got a baseball cap from some kid in the congregation, and they passed it around, and they said, here, we're the answer right here. We don't, we don't even need to go to God for this one. 170 backpacks? 170 backpacks? We don't even need to pray about that, do we? I mean, really, we, we don't. There's a to-do, sermon to-do, go get a backpack this afternoon. Really, I'm serious, go get a backpack this afternoon. The truth of the matter is that we can be controlled by our money and possessions, whether or not we are rich or poor. So the, the question for all of us is, and it's a question I think we ought to ask on a fairly regular basis, um, is this, what's your deal breaker with Jesus? what's your deal breaker? And and believe me, we've all got them. What in this life are you most afraid to lose? Is it your career? 
Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your health? Is it your wealth? Those are probably the top five. But if Jesus asked you, would you be willing to give it all to him? Would you be willing to give it all away? Does does that seem ludicrous? Does that seem impossible? Uh, Certainly the disciples seem to think so, and I think they were right. And if it seems impossible, well, that's probably a pretty good place to be. In order to follow, we've got to forsake. The second point is that, yeah, we can forsake our stuff and that which controls us because God is greater than our resistance. In verse 23, Jesus turns to the disciples and tells them how difficult it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he repeats this with a a hyperbolic statement, a deliberately ludicrous statement about uh, a camel going through the eye of a needle. Impossible. Impossible. Jesus himself acknowledges the power of possessions and how difficult it is for the wealthy, for us, to put our trust in something other than position or status or wealth or security or safety. But the disciples' paradigm of wealth is shaken to the very core by this statement. In verse 25, we read that the disciples were greatly astonished in hearing these words. Now, why? Why? It's a little bit curious. Because we tend to think of the poor and those with less affluence as somehow being more spiritual. And in many cases, that may be the place. That may be the case. We tend to label those things that have less monetary worth as somehow being uh, somehow infused with more spiritual significance. Think, think about this list of options. Uh, a disciple of Christ is more likely to be a, uh, an Armani-clad stockbroker or, or be a burlap-cloaked monk. Well, that, well, that's a no-brainer. A disciple of Christ is more likely to drive uh, a BMW or a 76 Ford. You, you pick the model. It doesn't really matter. Where do disciples of Christ shop? Do they shop at Abercrombie & Fitch, the A&F, or do they shop at Goodwill? And finally, a disciple of Christ is more likely to be A, a Packers fan, or, or a Bears fan, or actually a Colts fan. I mean, I don't even need to say anything there. But, but, okay, in the Jewish culture of the ancient Near East, it is riches. It is riches that were a sign of obedience and God's blessing. This kind of concept would have been uh, imprinted upon their heart, emblazoned in big letters. If you you look at this amazing passage from Deuteronomy uh, about the promises of blessings that are contingent, contingent upon obedience, The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but you will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you want to look for the prosperity gospel, which this is not, but it certainly might be misread that way. But the mindset was that material blessings were a sign of obedience. I'm obeying the Torah. I'm fulfilling the commands of the law, and God is blessing me for it. So the, the, rich, the rich were typically thought of as spiritual giants. 
Didn't this rich man say, yeah, I've you know, done that. I've, I'm, I'm fulfilling them all. I'm good. It had somehow kind of muted into its own prosperity doctrine of sorts where abundance became synonymous with riches. So finally, in verse 25, the disciples, to their astonishment, ask, well, if, if this young man who has so obviously been following the law can't be saved, who in the world can? And Jesus turns directly to them and speaks of that impossible possibility. What is impossible with man is possible for God. Essentially, he's saying no one can save themselves, but especially the rich. But God can, because with God, everything is indeed possible, not impossible. Um, a, A commentator put it this way, entrance into the kingdom is God's gift, but to belong to the kingdom means to follow Jesus' teaching. I like to say the gospel is God's free gift, but it's gonna cost you. The gospel's free, but it's gonna cost you something. And if we do it through God's power, it costs us everything. God regularly intervenes, thankfully, in the realm of the humanly impossible, where we feel that this claim is ridiculous it's worth, asking us, it's, it's worth us asking that about ourselves today. And if you are here as a Christ follower today, it came about only because God has already accomplished that which is humanly impossible. There is no other way. God is bigger than our money, and if God is big enough to save us, he's big enough to entrust our money to. We can learn to let go of our possessions and our stuff and our security and our safety because God is bigger than all of our wealth. We don't have to be like this rich young man, empty yet full. Something's missing, saddened. I I think my wife and I know a little bit about what this might entail. And to be sure, we, we didn't do it perfectly. Um, we've made numerous mistakes along the way, but there was uh, a time about 10 years ago or so that um, I sensed that I was doing the wrong thing. I was full-time employed as an engineer at Motorola. My wife was fully employed with a multinational corporation. Um, you know, great scenario, two incomes, no kids, um, bank account growing, everything going well, except for the fact that I started to hate my job. Um, Not because uh, I worked with difficult people or it was boring or I felt like I was a cog in a wheel, although that contributed to it, but I sensed that God was calling me to do something else, To, to, uh, to quit my job and go to a really expensive seminary and to take our life savings and then um, invest in moving overseas to get uh, a PhD. And my wife just followed right along with me, step by step, without one word of complaint or bitterness. And and I'm totally lying. I'm I'm totally lying. Um, (laughs) um, To, you know... To, to, her credit, she, to her credit, she trusted um, my perception of what God was calling us to do, even when she didn't necessarily see it herself. 
And so in that respect, she displayed a whole lot of more faith, a whole lot more faith than I did, quite frankly. And yeah, she went kicking and screaming. And, uh, you know, it took me about maybe three hours to get used to the new culture in Scotland, and it took her about a year. And yeah, it did cost us. No jobs, pack up all your stuff, sell what you can, and start um, watching whatever money you had saved up continually get smaller and smaller and smaller. All the other details of this journey are probably too numerous and boring to, to mention, but I, I tell you this story because, uh, not because I'm a more spiritual person for having abandoned more earning potential, um, and certainly not necessarily because it's a higher calling to be a seminary professor or to be uh, in the pastorate. It's certainly not because I willingly trusted God with reckless abandon. I, I did not. I did not. I went kicking and screaming too. And on more than one occasion, I thought, what in the world have I done? But I will tell you that several years ago, even in the midst of that darkness, I had an abundance of life that is beginning to erode because we've gotten comfortable and secure again. And I'm not sensing that God is calling us to go up and go anywhere else at this point. But there's part of me that kind of misses that, that sense of adventure and excitement in knowing that, man, God is going to have to really come through or we're going to be really messed up. God is bigger than our money, and God did the impossible. He got us over to the UK. And yeah, I will bore you with more stuff, but that's, that's next week about that story. But, you know, I was living my life for too small of a thing. And the only reason I'm standing here before you today, it's a testimony. It's a testimony to the fact that God routinely works in the realm of the humanly impossible. Maybe you're sensing that God might be calling you to a different life. And that may or may not involve doing something different. It may involve doing the same thing differently. It may very well involve you abandoning the wealth that holds you back and makes you feel secure. And if you feel like that's an impossible demand, then again, you're in the right place. Right where things seem the most impossible is typically where God intervenes and steps in. You ever think about um, the Apostle Peter and what his resume might look like? If, if you were an employer, would you, would you ever hire this guy if you saw his resume and, and you read, okay, he's, well, see, you were a fisherman, and then, um, well, you, you kind of left that aside, maybe sold the business, and then started following around an itinerant preacher who thought that he may or may not have been a deity, may or may not have risen from the dead, And since then, you've been stirring up trouble and have been in and out of prison. Do do you think Peter would have any regrets about not fishing anymore? Do, Do you think he would call his life one of abundance? In a church this big, the reality is is that there are many or some of you here who are living your lives right now for too small of a thing. Maybe you've sensed God's call to change careers even though it might be for less money or even though on paper you can't see how it could work. You just can't swing it. 
Maybe you've sensed it's time to take a risk. Maybe you felt a prompting from the Holy Spirit to undertake some kind of new ridiculous project for the sake of the kingdom. Maybe it just starts with a short-term mission project to have your worldview expanded of what the kingdom of God looks like in another country. Maybe you need to pray about those things and seek some wise counsel and remember always that God is bigger than our money and our comfort. Our lives are on loan from God. They really are. I don't want to come to the end of my life and find that I've lived it for too small of a thing. It just ain't worth it. I know others of you have made this kind of change, and I only pray that the Holy Spirit continues to speak words of affirmation and confirmation in your spirit to keep following and seeking him. Christ requires, he overcomes resistance, and finally, he rewards. He rewards us. Peter himself is thinking, if this young, rich man was asked to leave everything, isn't that what we've done? Isn't that what we've done, Jesus? He's seeking some kind of reassurance after everything that he thought he knew about the law and gaining eternal life. In verse 27, he asks, what will happen to us? And in verse 28, Jesus says, you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel at the renewal of all things when God returns for his people. The disciples who have given up nearly everything and become insignificant in this world are promised a significant role in the next. And in verse 29, uh, Jesus broadens this to include us, to include everyone. And everyone who has given up houses or forsakes family or career gets earthly and heavenly blessings thrown in. What, What it might cost some of us if we lose earning potential. It might cost some of us the house we've always dreamed of. For others, it may cost... Uh, marriage. It may, we may have to forsake the possibility of marriage or kids in response to God's higher call. Now, clearly, that's not for everyone. It's probably not a very popular thing to say. But this is not a, a prosperity gospel. You, you give up something in order to get in return. Uh, this is not the kind of pro- prosperity gospel that urges us to give possessions away so that God will bless us with much more, even though he does routinely do this. Uh, Here's one book that you should not buy. Paul Pilzer, former economic advisor to President Reagan. Um, God Wants You to Be Rich. It's a very popular book. Um, Surprise. Um, He basically asserts in the book, it's not a sin to be rich. And at least he gets that part right. Um, But Jesus never said that. Of course it's not bad to be rich, but if your heart is in the right place, how narrow-minded it can be to think that God simply desires us to have material blessings. And if it were only about material blessings, he could have told this man, you've got to work a little bit more at your commands, but you know, give a little bit more, go and be happy. Go and be fulfilled. But he wants everything. <laughs> he wants our heart. And, and maybe to, to get a sense of what we might be missing out on, um, we, we could look at it from the other angle. And I, I love this quote from Dallas Willard in his wonderful little book, 
uh, spirit of the disciplines. What, what does not following Christ cost us? What did it cost that rich ruler? Well, it costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, the faith that seeks everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. How cool would it be if we all had resumes that in some way, shape, or form kind of reflected in their own unique way the life of Peter? Even without necessarily having to change our jobs. And if we widen this whole concept globally, uh, we can all recognize that we are blessed beyond belief. The poorest among us here are still richer than 95% of the rest of the world. Yet God knows when we do something as simple as giving sacrificially to support someone else or to support another ministry. I remember a couple in my small group told the story of how they were blessed by supporting a friend on their music ministry team who was uh, very, very hard off financially and very poor and needed, needed a new shirt. And so they had talked about buying him some clothes, and after a a month of delaying, they finally decided to present him with some clothes. And they went out and $150, $200 worth of stuff, bought him some some new clothes because he was in desperate need. And when their friend saw what what, what they had done, what they had done for him, he, um, he, he was blown away. He was, he, he, he wept openly. And they thought, wow, that's, you know, yeah, it's a cool shirt, but I don't, you know, I guess some fashion can move you to tears. I'm I'm not sure. But but here's what he said. He said, you know, I was just thinking this weekend that I I had been desperately needing to get a shirt, and I got 25 bucks in my pocket, free and clear. But I had remembered that about a month prior, I had been listening to a radio ministry, and I was really blessed by it, and I, I... prayed to God, and I said, I made, a, I made a, a commitment to God. I said, the next time I get some free money, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to support this ministry. And so he said, I fought this battle back and forth about what to do with this 25 bucks. And in the end, yeah, I really wanted a shirt, but I made a commitment to God to support this ministry, so I wrote the check yesterday. Now, you know, frankly, these kinds of stories really do happen all the time. But I think it's also true that most of us just don't live our lives close enough to the danger where um, most of us don't live our lives in such a way that we need God to show up and show up fast. And is that just a function of our wealth or, or is there something more going on there? He wants everything. I want it all. We can't follow God in money, and chances are there are people in your lives today who could be, just, who could be blessed rather by your generosity. But we're also promised some type of heavenly reward, and Matthew focuses more on the blessings that will come in heaven and notes that we will indeed inherit, not earn, eternal life. Our very lives are on loan from God, and one day we'll be asked to give an account of how we spent them. 
I don't want to come before God with a full bank account. I really don't. I don't want to come before God and have to admit that I lived for too small of a thing. I don't want to have to come before God and say, I never, never took a risk. I, you know, stay, I, stayed, I stayed close to the ground, never got out of control, made sure I had a safety net, never had to rely on anybody else for too much. What sad and sorrowful words to be spoken in the presence of the king. There are some among you here who have demonstrated that this stuff doesn't own you and you routinely give generously to building up God's kingdom. I, I can only say keep, keep it up, keep doing it. You are accumulating treasures in heaven. And we at times in our lives have been on the receiving end of this kind of generosity. You want to follow, you got to forsake. And with God's help, the impossible becomes possible. Christ requires it. God overcomes our resistance and ultimately rewards us in this life and the next for doing so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you own the cattle on a thousand hills and it is all yours. We ask, Father, that you would send your spirit to convict us, each and every one of us, in our own way about what might be holding us back. About how we might be able to follow you more fully, if only, if only. We give these if-onlys to you, God, and ask for your power to do the impossible and to live a life fully devoted to you. For it is all for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.